Welcome to Teaching from Trinity, a weekly podcast from Trinity Lutheran Church in Rupert, Idaho. For the months of January through May, Rev. Dr. James Von Bush is leading this class exploring the book of Revelation. If you would like the handout to accompany this week's lesson, please visit our website, tlcrupert.com. You can find them on the virtual attendance page under the home tab. Thank you for listening. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful to be your people, to count, be counted among the numbers of your saints. And Lord, we do face things in this world that are hard for us to make sense of. And they're very hard for us to make sense of in relationship to your kingdom and what you say is happening in this world and in eternity and in heaven. So, Father, as we look into your word today, we ask that your Holy Spirit would give us the guidance we need Fill us with your grace, grant us hope, and help us to live as your kingdom people. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I begin every one of these Revelation classes by reading from Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, to remind us what this is all about, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. I'm going to read this quote. It comes from the book written by Dr. Lewis Brighton, titled Revelation. And I think it ties in with this idea of understanding that God is revealing to us from his perspective what is happening in heaven and on earth. That's what Jesus says as he ascends into heaven. He has been given authority, all authority, in heaven and on earth. So he's tying the two together for us in the book of Revelation, tying together what's happening in heaven and on earth, helping us see a bigger picture and what's really important. And so it's not about, well, I'll just read the quote. The end result of the prophetic message, then, is not to give a predictable view of history, but rather to give a predictable view of the human condition in suffering and defeat because of human evil and rebellion against God. Let me pause there for a moment. It's not about predicting time frames or when things will happen and what will be the signs of those things happening. It's to predict, make it predictable for us to understand our human condition. What God is revealing to us in the book of Revelation is not calendars and time frames, but our hearts and what he has done to save us. That's the book of Revelation. It's the same gospel message that is recorded for us in the rest of the scriptures. And so that's what's predicted. The human condition and suffering and defeat because of human evil and rebellion against God and a predictable knowledge of God's terrible judgment. The purpose is to move all people to repentance and faith before the end, which in turn serves the ultimate purpose of displaying Christ's majestic sovereignty for the salvation and hope of those who listen, repent, and believe. The book of Revelation is the gospel. It's about salvation and giving time for all people to repent, to come to believe in Jesus Christ. That is the purpose of the gospel, and it has not changed. And so the book of Revelation certainly does emphasize there will be an end. We can predict that God will judge, and all who believe are secure and have eternal life. But those who do not believe are still under the wrath and condemnation of God. So it is a serious book, actually. It's a very serious book, comforting for the believer, terrifying 
for the unbeliever. And in that essence, hoping to use the law, the terrifying work of the law, to bring them to repentance and to hear the grace of God. So that's what we're looking at here for a few minutes this morning. And as we all know and have probably said the phrase, if you don't learn from history, you're doomed to repeat it because history repeats itself. History repeats itself. And that's what we're going to be looking at here even in the book of Revelation. We see a repeating aspect to it. So there will be seals, bowls, and trumpets. But the mistake would be to read this in a linear fashion, that it happens from chapter 1 of Revelation like it's a a single story all the way through to chapter 22 in a linear approach like we would read many novels. But that is not how the book of Revelation is written. Of course, it starts out by writing these, John, you know, Jesus dictates these seven letters to the churches. And then we move on from that, the continuation of another vision and another vision and another vision, all of them from different perspectives of the same three-dimensional story. And so it's not written in a linear fashion. It, in fact, is written in a repeating way. And so we have now, we're going to be looking at three visions of seven scenes each. So let's just take a look at that for a moment. Just even the way it's written will give us some indicators and helps for interpreting what's happening and being said. Three visions of seven scenes, and the three visions are going to be of the same material again and again and again. Why would, he, why would God do it this way? I think, and I, this is coming from many commentators who have studied the book of Revelation, I agree with them, that in one sense, it's just too much to reveal all at once. It is just too much. It's too big. We're talking about God's plan. It's too big to just be able to write out in you know, a linear, short fashion. In fact... Let me read from John chapter 16 for you because this is God's pattern, not just in Revelation, but in all the Gospels and really throughout all time in the Scriptures. We see this repeating information because it's just too much to receive all at once. This is what Jesus says in John chapter 16. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. It's too much. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The idea here is that it will be done incrementally that it won't be all at once because it's too much. Jesus is even talking about his end of time on earth and what's going to happen. He has so much he wants to share with the disciples, but he knows if he says it all now, it'll be too much. They won't be able to, to receive it all. And that is the nature of God, always, is he is giving so much that there's no way we can receive it all. He gives grace in such superabundance that there's no way we can receive it all. And he gives love infinitely and unconditionally. There's no way we can receive it all. But by the faith that he has given to us, we receive it. And so he gives it to us. Even now, as we look into his word, he is giving 
to us. And we will receive according to the faith that we have. When we enter into divine worship, He is going to pour out His grace in superabundance through the means that He has promised He will work through. And it's more than we can receive. And so Jesus even says to His disciples, I have so many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. This is Jesus' method of operation all the time. It's God's method of operation. And we see it through all scriptures. He reveals bits and pieces of Himself and his plan of salvation, and he doesn't give it all at once. Even in Genesis 3.15, the very first mention of the gospel to Adam and Eve, he simply says, I'll send someone to save you. He doesn't spell it all out for them. He doesn't give them all the times and dates and who it... He says, I'm going to send someone to save you. And he does it piece by piece. So... We have three visions of seven scenes each simply because it's just too much to reveal all in one. And as I've already mentioned, it's also too much to receive. So it's too much to reveal and it's too much to receive. And this is also in harmony with God's nature and divine characteristic. As Jesus was speaking, he says the Holy Spirit is going to reveal all truth to you. All truth. That also includes, then, things about you. The brokenness that still resides in your heart. You see, we are not even aware of how broken we are. We deceive ourselves. We aren't aware of even the sins that we're committing. Because we do them so naturally and so continuously. And one of the, the things that the Holy Spirit reveals to us in His gentleness and patience he reveals things to us in time. He does not reveal to you all your sinfulness all at once. It would destroy you. If He revealed to you how broken you are, if He revealed to you all your sins, it would destroy us. And so the Holy Spirit reveals things to us in His time. Truth about Himself truth about his work in our lives and those around us, truth in his scripture, and even truth about who we are and the very sins we commit on a regular basis that we're not even aware of. And, you know, Martin Luther was confronted with this. He says in his catechism, so maybe you get to the point of confession, you're thinking, I don't think I have anything to confess. I don't think I've sinned. Martin Luther's answer to that is, well, just start with the Ten Commandments. You won't get very far. And something, the Holy Spirit will prompt you in some way. I mean, if you can get past number one, where you are still fearing, loving, trusting God alone above all else, and that He occupies, He is the most important, that everything in your life revolves around Him. If you can get past that, you might find something in the other nine. But let's just be real for a moment, right? Let's just be authentic and say, my life does not revolve around God all day long. In fact, quite often, my life revolves around me. And so, I don't have to look very far to find something to confess. So again, I got a little waylaid there, a little distracted. Too much to reveal, too much to receive, even because we, cannot, we can't, just can't process it all at once. So the three perspectives that we're going to be looking at are of the same events, and God's purpose, the three perspectives, these three visions 
are on the same events and, and God's purpose in all of them. This is three-dimensional understanding. You can't see it just from one side. And so God is going to reveal to us from multiple perspectives. The number three, why three visions? Because it's God's story. Even as the scroll was given from God the Father to the Lamb, Jesus Christ, because he was the only one with the authority to open it, it's the story, the complete story. And God is writing this story. It's the upper story. As we talked about a couple of seasons ago when we went through the story from Genesis to Revelation and we talked about the difference between the upper story and the lower story. The upper story being what God sees and what he's doing there and in the lower story, which is what we see. God is working in both. But rarely do we get to see the upper story. We live in the lower story. Well, this is... God's story, the upper story. He's the one who's writing it. He's the one who's telling it. It's his story. So the number three, as you recall, represents the triune God. It's his story. And it's three visions to tell it. And then there's the number seven. So seven scenes in each of the three visions because it's God's completed work. It's his story. And it's his completed work. Think again of Genesis chapter 1. Six days and then he rests on the seventh. He completed his work. We've said this numerous times and it's not meant to be flippant or facetious. It's not like God was all worn out from the six days of creation and had to lay in the lounge chair on day seven. What he's saying in that day seven of rest is complete. And that's what, he, that's what he has instilled in us. And even in the, in the law that he gave to the Israelites, the commandments, keep the Sabbath day holy, work is completed. His work is completed, the work of salvation. And so it was commemorated every week. Every week it was lived in that moment of saying God completed his work. That's what it's meant by keeping the Sabbath day holy and resting. It's not because I'm so tired that I just need to nap all day. It's a statement of completion. And so we have seven scenes, meaning God is going to complete his work. There will be a final chapter. There will be a conclusion. And God is writing it to completion. So that's three visions. We're going to unpack them as we go through the next chapters of Revelation, keeping those things in mind then, because it's a very important key, you know, concept as far as interpreting what's happening, that each time we go through the next set of sevens, the next scenes, it's retelling the same story again from another vantage point. Let's talk about tribulation for the church. This is a key you know, emphasis in many uh, perspectives that there will be tribulation, but then there's going to be a real intense seven years of tribulation. That's one thought process. We looked at that when we talked about dispensationalism specifically. But we need to understand, what is this tribulation that is being referenced in the book of Revelation? And how is it being described to John? So we have a couple of words here. I'm going to read from the first seal that's down at the bottom of your handout. The first seal, the white horse with rider. We'll come back and talk about that horseman in a minute. But I want to emphasize a point here. So now I watched. This is John. 
Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud voice, with a voice like thunder, Come. That's the end of verse 1. Come. There's a couple of key things that you need to know about here. In the Greek, there's actually two words used that are interpreted for that one word, come. And that's what we're looking at here. The first word is erkomahi. There won't be a test on that. Can you spell it? Well, I got it there for you. It's back up. Oh, okay. Yeah. Erkomahi. That means to come. Simply the verb phrase to come. The next one is blepo, which is to look at. These are the two words that are in combination in that verse that gets translated in many of our translations. Now, some of them, if you looked in the King James or the New King James, uh, to be specific, there's a couple other translations that actually include both words. Come and see is the idea. Come and see. What happens in several of the translations, like the English Standard Version or the New International Version, they just use this word come emphatically. Yours probably has, I mean, if you look it up, it has this exclamation point. It's an emphatic statement. Come so you can look at it. That's the idea. Come so you can look. And in fact, it's written in such a way, and our English language doesn't do this justice, but many of the other languages do. They have the verb tenses right in it. So you know, just based on the verb tense, if it's plural or who it's being said or who's going to do the action or what kind of action it's supposed to be. And the Greek, these Greek words do that. So to really translate this, it would be something like, John, you come here and look at this. That's the idea. It's the fourth, this creature is speaking directly to John and saying, you, John, come here and look. Behold, see and understand. That's all captured now in our one English word, come. But that's the whole idea. John, you come here and look at this so you will understand. And so both verbs, next bullet point, both verbs are active and continuous. Come here and keep looking. Keep watching so you can understand. There's going to be action taking place, active and continuous. There's action happening. So it's not just looking at a snapshot. It's not just saying, hey, John, look at that picture of the horse. Watch what's going to happen. Watch what's taking place so you can understand what this reality is is that you and the people of God are living in. And so he says that repeatedly. In fact, for all the horses, as they are commented on by the four living creatures, it's the same phrase, come and see. And in verse 2, John says, and I looked and behold. So the the creature says to John, you come and look and understand. Keep looking, keep looking, keep watching. And John says, I looked, I watched, I watched it happen. And so he's saying to now the church that he's writing to, this is what I saw. It was happening continuously and actively. The next bullet point, who says it? I've already mentioned this, a living creature. Each time a a seal is open 
And one of the horsemen comes out riding. It's one of the four living creatures who announces it and says to John, now look at this one. Look at this one. Look at what's happening next. Look, come and see and behold. And so we have the four creatures, the four living creatures that we talked about before, and four horsemen. So each, there's a connection between each one. And then to whom is it said? Well, just want to say this for emphasis. It's the Apostle John, but it's for the church. This is for the church. The seals that are being opened, the story that is being told, the horsemen on their different colored horses that are coming forth. This is for the church to understand. And it's what's then and now and will be. All of those. As these horsemen, they're not futuristic. It's not sometime in 2050 or, you know, 2100 or sometime in the future. This is, John is writing this for the church in his day, for the church in our day, and for the church to come. All four of these horsemen present throughout history now. We're not waiting for the horsemen to show up. They're here right now. They have been, and they will continue to be. Because, the last bullet point, the tribulation will continue until Christ returns. The tribulation will continue until Christ returns. And so the church will experience tribulation. It has experienced tribulation. That's who John is writing this letter for, the churches of that day. And so if it wouldn't make sense to them or apply to them, well, what's the point? But we know one of the things that the Scripture is true about is it always applies to the people that received it in that day. Always. So it has to make sense to them as well as to us and be relevant today and even for the church to generations to come. So that's an important thing to keep in mind. I want to go back to the who says it for just a moment, the living creatures want to clarify something here. It's not that the living creatures are saying, and next, announcing the red horse. I mean, it's not like they're calling the red horse out or the white horse out. They are speaking to John. So it's not like they're saying, okay, red horse, it's your turn, come on out. No, they are talking specifically to John. Look and see what the white horse does. Look and see what the red horse and its rider does. Look and see what the pale horse and its rider is doing. So those, I think, are important interpretation things to keep in mind. They are still saying to John, look, watch, understand. It's going to be like this for people in general and for the church specific until Christ returns. Yes, sir. Four living creatures, what are they? What's their purpose? Are are they symbolic of something? Oh, they are. So the four living creatures, four meaning corporate humanity, right? And then they have the lion and the ox and the man and the eagle. And so we we reflected on, in this context, it's the corporate church, big C church. And so they are representing all the people, you know, the people that are around the throne of God. 
Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, and we'll dive into that just a little bit more. We'll, um, but yeah, we'll look at that again as we go through. You mentioned a red horse. <laughs> yes, I did. It does. Yeah, yeah. So, and we're going to look at each one of these horses by color in just a moment. Yeah, new news, huh? Who, you never saw a red horse before, at least not like this. Maybe a roan, but anyway. Kind of reddish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we're going to look at, so for the first four seals are different horses and riders, and each one has its own color. Any sorrel. Thank you for correcting me. Anything else? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I want to get it right, you know, this is on the podcast. <laughs> we want to be right in all things. <laughs> yes. Any chance she gets to correct. Any anything any other pertinent questions? <laughs> all right, let's take a look then at um yeah, let's take a look at the seals. The first seal is the white horse with rider. Now some speculate, I'm going to say this up front and then show you why it's not true. Some speculate that this is Christ because Christ of course would come out riding on a white horse, wouldn't he? <laughs> and we have references in other places that speak about a white horse, which we'll look at in just a moment. But this is a very different first and well, let me just go through it now. So this is not Christ. I'm going to say that up front. It cannot be Christ, and we'll look at why uh, as we go through it. But let me read again from Revelation chapter 6. John says, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come and see. I'm going to go ahead and add that because it's the contextual point. Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. We will need to look and understand why this is not Jesus Christ. Let me read from Revelation chapter 19, where we also hear about a white horse, but a very different white horse and a very different rider. Revelation chapter 19, John says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems and many crowns, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That is Christ. That is Christ riding on a white horse. Very different. The white horse in chapter 6 that I just wrote, uh, read about earlier, he has no name. You notice that, right? He's just a rider on a white horse, has no name. He's been given one crown, which means he does have authority and rule, but he's just out there to conquer. Just to conquer. He's conquering 
and he just wants to conquer. Very different than what we hear in Revelation 19 about Jesus Christ who is going to execute the wrath of God. It's very different. And so this could not be. And as I mentioned, the rider on the white horse in Revelation 6 has no name, but here are several names. And if you're still keeping track of the names of Christ or his titles that are mentioned in the book of Revelation, here's five. Faithful and true, a name that only he knows. The word of God, King of kings, Lord of lords. Make no mistake. The one riding on the white horse in Revelation chapter 19 is Jesus Christ, the one and only. Besides that, we also heard back in Revelation chapter 6, John opens by saying, I watched the Lamb open the seven seals. That's Jesus Christ. The Lamb who was slain is the one opening the seals. So he is not going to be the one reading the scroll, opening the seal, and then come riding out on a white horse so that John can say, hey, look, there's this rider on a white horse. who's." So it is. I just want to emphasize that for clarity's sake. It is not Jesus. Just to emphasize it one more way in Ezekiel chapter 39. So God says to Ezekiel, And you, son of man, prophesy against Gog, and say, that's G-O-G, by the way, Gog, and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and I will turn you about and drive you forward. So what he's saying is, Gog is advancing, he's bringing war, And God says to him, I'm going to turn you around. I'm going to stop you in your tracks. I'm going to drive you the other direction. And I will turn you about and drive you forward and bring you up from the uttermost parts of the north and lead you against the mountains of Israel. I will strike your bow from your left hand and will make your arrows drop out of your right hand. You shall fall on the mountains of Israel, you and all your hordes and the peoples who are with you. I will give you to birds of prey of every sort and to the beasts of the field to be devoured. Utter destruction. God is going to destroy this ruler called Gog. Well, what's his weapon? Did you notice that? A bow and arrows. What do we know about the rider on the white horse? Behold, the white horse and its rider had a bow and arrows. This rider will be destroyed by Christ. And so Christ always comes with a sword. This one has a bow. So if you're filling in the blanks, what we have here is the white horse with rider is actually an imposter. There are a series of antichrists throughout the generations. Sometimes it's thought there will, there's only one Antichrist, and when will he show up? But the scriptures are clear, and John himself in his letters talk about multiple Antichrists. Any, anyone who's an imposter, Jesus says there will be many who will come and say, they are me, and they will try to lead you astray. There will be any number of Antichrists preaching a false gospel, leading people away from the one true Christ and the one true gospel. So we know that from generation to generation, there are antichrists, imposters. 
and the one on the white horse is an imposter. And when it talks about conquering and to conquer, this rider on the white horse is seeking to conquer the church, wants to destroy the church. That's why the, the living creature says to John, come and look and see what's happening. You want to understand why the church is going through such tribulation? It's because there is a rider on a white horse, and that's his sole intent, is to conquer the church. So watch and understand. This is, this is what the reality is. This is what you're experiencing, John. This is what the churches are experiencing that you're going to write this letter to. And as soon as they read, Jesus opens the seal as the lamb that was slain. He opens the seal and the first seal, a white horse comes out conquering and to conquer and he's an imposter. And they're going to say, that's why we're experiencing so much tribulation. That's why we're dealing with so much heartache. And even though Gog will be defeated in the end, he is warring against us now. And the white horse, the rider, will be defeated by God. But right now, he's rampaging against the church, against God's people. So let me, let me reflect on this idea of tribulation for the church for a moment. Jesus does not promise exemption from trials or tribulation. He never made that promise. In fact, what he did promise is that we would experience trials and tribulation. The exact opposite. And so even when we pray the Lord's Prayer and we ask him to not lead us into temptation, but to rescue us, deliver us from evil, we are recognizing that we are living in days of tribulation and every generation of God's people will live in tribulation. Jesus has promised it. And so we ask, we ask him to secure our faith so that we can live courageously in the times of tribulation, not escape or exempt from, but strong and courageous in them. So I pray for you. I pray for you that you will be strong and courageous in your times of trial and tribulation that the Holy Spirit will secure your faith. Because let me be just really transparent with you. The scriptures teach it over and over again. Many who sit with us in church will fall away when times of tribulation come. And so I pray that, I mean, Jesus says it, a time of tribulation will be cut short or none would be left, is what Jesus says. The times of tribulation will be cut short or there won't be a believer left. And so I pray for you. Yeah. Kev, just to make sure my thinking is going correct, can we say that these false religions are part of that white horse? I don't think that would be a stretch at all, Fred. Because, again, we, we, it's, it's war, it's active war, but it's sometimes very subtle. I mean, it could be what we would consider to be, you know, psyops or, uh, you know, things that we aren't even aware of. 
But all of a sudden, people have been led astray. The white rider on the white horse doesn't care how they're led astray. Satan doesn't care how people abandon their faith in Christ as long as they do. So whether it's through active hardship and hard tribulation and persecution, or whether it be subtly leading them astray and say, you know, we saw this, we talked about this earlier in one of the letters to the churches, Balaam, right? Balaam and Balak and, well, they couldn't curse the people, so what did they do? They brought in the women and led them astray. If you want to marry our women, then you got to believe and worship our gods. It's as simple as that. And so I think you're right, Fred, that when we think about this white horse and its rider conquering and to conquer the church, however he can get us to abandon our faith, even if we aren't even necessarily aware of it at the time, right? We might still be showing up in church on a regular basis, and yet our faith is not in Christ. We just live a culture. Does that help? Yeah. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus is saying, tribulation, right? Jesus experienced tribulation. Book of Philippians, Paul says, he obedience to the point of death on a cross. Tribulation. Why would we think as his followers that we would be exempt? He says, Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever, lo- whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. That's from Matthew 16. Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, it's tribulation. It's suffering. He says in John chapter 15, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you? A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. And so, once again, he said, why would you expect to be treated differently than the Savior you follow, the name that you, that you claim to trust in? And then he says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away, because falling away is a reality. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. When it comes to you, remember these words. Remember that Jesus has promised that you are his. He has chosen you out of this world and so the world will hate you the rider on the white horse is looking for you the message given to john for the church must be relevant for the church at every age as i mentioned so how could the early church anticipate such things that happened centuries later 
if this was not the case, right? It's simple what John is saying as the fourth, the, I say the fourth, I'm sorry, the, the living creature says to John, one of the four, come and look and see this is the tribulation the church is experiencing and this is why. How could they understand the period of the dark ages? That would happen centuries later. How would that be meaningful to them? How could they understand that the Dark Ages were actually a result of Christianity becoming the Roman national religion? I mean, that would you think that wasn't that great? Constantine makes Christianity the Roman religion, state religion. Wasn't that like a big win? It was the worst thing that has ever happened. Because then it just became the culture and everybody was a Christian because it was the Roman religion and that's what you did. It was no different than the earlier gods. It's just now this one. And people didn't really believe. It was a name only. They went and did the rituals and they did what was expected and they did, and then nobody knew. And nobody believed. And then it was the Dark Ages. Despair. How could they have ever understood the Lutheran Reformation and the the Enlightenment and understanding grace and faith and Scripture? I mean, for the Dark Ages, nobody had the Scriptures anymore. It was as dark as the days in Israel when all of a sudden Josiah is doing some remodeling in the temple and they find the law and they're like, we haven't seen this for generations. And he calls them to repentance. And so in the Reformation, people are called once again to repentance. How could the early church have seen that coming? How about things like the American Revolution? And how different that is than the French Rebellion? And how could they understand the current oppression that they were experiencing and the persecution they were experiencing if it wasn't in the context that this rider on the white horse is seeking to conquer the church in every generation? We are always one generation from extinction. So if you proclaim the gospel, here's the nutshell, I mean, this is the whole point. If you proclaim the gospel, you will experience tribulation one way or another. The enemy wants to extinguish all fire and light. He wants us to live in darkness. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. He talks about the Holy Spirit being the seven torches of the churches, the lampstands. We are the light of the world, and the enemy wants to extinguish that. That's, in fact, why the gospel went through the dark ages. The devil first came against it through massive persecution, where Christians were killed in the most despicable ways. You've heard the stories about Emperor Nero. He would pour oil and wax over the Christians, and set them on fire so that he could use them, their burning bodies as lamps around his garden. So he could light his racetrack at night so he could ride his chariot around the track. Others were boiled alive while others were put into the arenas and eaten by wild animals. Still others were run through with the sword, beheaded or crucified. But it was during that time that the gospel spread like wildfire. When it was the national religion, it died. That's what happens. When the church is martyred, the gospel spreads. 
if the people of the church need to be concerned about something, it's the broad acceptance of being normal in the culture. If Christians have something to be worried about, to be concerned about, it's being the church and Christianity is normal part of culture because that means the church is dying. Where there's persecution, that's where the gospel spreads. The enemy is not trying to destroy the Muslim message or Hinduism. Christians are the ones dying, and God uses martyrs to get the gospel out. So here's what John is saying. You know, the creature says, John, look and see. Why is the church being persecuted? Because there's an enemy against the church. Why is it being allowed to continue? Because the gospel is proclaimed when the church is persecuted. So why is some of your trial and challenge and persecution sometimes continuing? Not all the time necessarily. There's other reasons why we experience heartache and pain in this life. We'll get to that in a minute. But first and foremost, if you proclaim the gospel, the world will hate you, just like it hates the one you're proclaiming the gospel about, and your life will get hard. It was when Christianity became the state religion that idolatry crept in. Eventually, the word of God was taken out of the people's hands. A system religion, of religion replaced it, and it was the church's, church's darkest time. But the Reformation came, and if it hadn't, the fire of God may have been extinguished. But history is in God's hands. And the Spirit of God cannot be put out. So receive those words of comfort and grace. Well, we've got a few more seals to look at. Any questions before I move forward? The second seal, the red horse with rider. When Jesus opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come and see. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. This is every generation. Every generation, people are slaying one another. True? So the first bullet point is this rider spreading violence among people. That's what he's doing, spreading violence among people. And this is in general. Why? Because when God created man and woman, he says, let's make man in our image. Every man and woman is an image bearer of the almighty God. And the devil hates him. The devil hates God and therefore hates anyone who would bear his image. And as humans, we bear the image of God. He created us in his own image. So this rider spreads violence among people. The second bullet point is hostility toward the people of God. Because not only, we do, we, not only do we bear the image of God, we are image bearers of Jesus Christ. The one who crushed his head. The one who defeated him, death, and the devil. So Satan has an especially great hatred for Christ people, Christ followers. So it's spreading violence among people in general and then hostility towards the people of God. 
third seal, the black horse with rider. When Jesus opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come and see. And I looked and behold, a black horse and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice with uh, a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and wine. So what's the black horse all about? Scarcity and poverty. Scarcity and poverty. A denarius is a day's wage. That's what it meant. It was a day's wage. And so it would cost an entire day's wage for a quart of wheat, which basically is enough food for one person for one day. You're going to spend your entire wage for working one day for one meal. Scarcity and poverty. But he doesn't stop there. This black horse is also about power and apathy. So you have, in fact, you know, a quart of wheat for a denarius, that's a day's wage for one person. Then three quarts of barley, which was cheaper, was almost enough for a family for a day. So either way, he's saying, you won't have enough. Scarcity and poverty. But then this power and apathy, he finishes by saying, but, you know, don't harm the oil or the wine. Where are you coming up with oil and wine? Well, he's making this great distinction between those who are suffering in poverty and those who are rich and don't care. I have mine. Don't touch my oil or wine. It's mine. I don't care how anybody else might be suffering. I have mine. Does that not sound relevant? As long as we have ours, don't care about others. Think about how this extrapolates out then. We're not just talking about some wheat, barley, wine, and oil. We're talking about the gospel. I'm saved. Do I really care about anybody else? So am I going to share the gospel with neighbors, co-workers? Is Is that what my world revolves around? Is how to share the gospel? Or am I okay with the fact that I got mine? And be apathetic towards those who are perishing. The fourth seal, the pale or gray horse with its rider. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come and see. And I looked and behold, a pale horse. This color pale, gray isn't really, it's more like the color of a corpse is the idea. So death rides on it. Um, Let's see, where was I? And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. It's the only one who gets a name of the four riders is Death. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth uh, to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Constant calamities on earth. Constant calamities. So when Jesus says, you know, there's going to be earthquakes and famines and pestilence and things in Matthew chapter 24, what he's saying is these things will continue until he returns. Kind of describing today. Of course. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the next one is extensive, but not the end. There's given this idea of one-fourth. 
If you try and measure that out, that's not what's the purpose. It's not trying to predict what one-fourth of the population is or where those you know, calamities are going to happen. Simply, the creature says to John, come and see this horse and rider named Death, and there is constant death. Death is just a constant reality that we will face. No exemption. So of the four riders, all of them, you know, John is receiving this word that says there's going to be attacks on the, on the people in general and on the church specific. There's going to be violence among the people. Every generation there will be violence because the red horse removes peace. The black horse, there will be scarcity and poverty and rich apathy every generation. And there will be calamities on this earth so death is a constant reality. Fifth seal, the martyrs. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Now he's tying it together, right? These are the followers of Christ who have carried their cross, who have proclaimed the gospel and have been killed for the witness that they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe. And and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. This is the reality that we live in. These were given white robes, the robes of Christ's righteousness. They are suffering for the sake of the gospel. Jesus says, rest. Rest in him. Rest in his assurances in His promises, in His love, rest, so that the rest of the number can be brought in. The church is still growing, and so the gospel is still being proclaimed. So we're going to wait longer. That's exactly what Peter writes when he says, God is not slow, He is patient, so that more will come to believe. The sixth seal, the wrath of the Lamb. Doesn't that sound like an oxymoron? Mm-hmm. Wrath and Lamb. I don't know how many lambs. Have, I guess, you know, some of them can get pretty outrageous. Yeah, <laughs> you know, right, Shelby? I guess some of them can get a little uptight. But what is this sixth seal is talking about the end. There will come an end. The story will conclude. When Jesus opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds in winter fruits when shaken by a gale. They're just going to come crashing down. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain island was removed from its place. It will end. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, might want to underline everyone. No one is exempt. They all hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him 
who is seated on the throne. Why? Because they have not trusted in the Lamb. And they are facing the judgment and wrath of God. Hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? There will come a day of final and eternal judgment. God and the Lamb, the wrath, will be experienced. So the first bullet point, the Lamb in His great love ransomed all mankind. The Lamb who was slain paid the price for the salvation of every human soul. And the second bullet point, in His great wrath, He will judge all who reject His love. The wrath of the Lamb. Father in heaven, we are grateful for You. We are grateful for Your love and Your patience with us. We ask, Lord, that You would help us to live faithfully as Your chosen ones, to proclaim Your gospel, for Your church is not done growing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.